comprehensive, relevant, and insightful conversations about health and medicine happen here on MedStarHealth.com. It's not unusual to confuse uterine or ovarian cancers with cervical cancer. While they're all a part of a woman's reproductive system, they affect different parts of the body, have different risk factors, symptoms, treatment, and survival rates. The only gynecologic cancer with a routine screening and prevention tool is cervical cancer. Yet about 14,000 new cases will be diagnosed this year, and over 4,000 women will die of cervical cancer, according to the American Cancer Society. To get a full understanding of symptoms, diagnosis, treatment, and prevention, I've invited gynecologic oncologist Dr. Irina Tonnage from the MedStar Georgetown Cancer Institute at MedStar Franklin Square Medical Center in Baltimore. I'm your host, Deborah Schindler. Dr. Tonnage, thank you for being with us on MedStar Health Doc Talk. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start by being clear about what part of the reproductive system the cervix actually is. Yeah, so your uterus uh, has two parts. It has the womb, the muscle component, the uh, sort of body of the uterus where you carry a pregnancy that grows and, you know, when you're pregnant and then the sort of neck of the uterus that we call the cervix, which is why it has a similar name to things in your neck. And when you go into labor, that's the part of the uterus that dilates. That's when they say, you know, you're five centimeters or six or seven centimeters dilated. That's the cervix. It's about it's about four centimeters long and it has an inside portion called an endocervix and an outside portion called the ectocervix. You know, when we do uh, pelvic exams, when we uh, do pap smears, that's what we're swabbing for atypical cells for, just like you were talking about. So I mentioned that cervical cancer is the only gynecologic cancer with routine screenings, which is a considerable advantage over other cancers over the reproductive system. Of course, we know that as the pap test, and you, you just, as you just mentioned. Can you explain what the test is, what, yeah. it's, what it's in search of, and how it transpires? Absolutely. So we can thank Dr. Papa Nicolau for this test. Um, but what it is, is a swab of the cells uh, of the outside of the cervix, ultimately put on a slide and a pathologist or a cytologist, an expert in looking at atypical cells, takes a look at them under the microscope. And what they look for are atypical cells. What this test is not is a biopsy. Um, so it is not a tissue diagnosis. It is a cytologic diagnosis and a screening test. But with an atypical diagnosis, it might lead us to suggest that you need something called a colposcopy, which is a microscopic examination of your cervix, which can often lead to biopsies and tissue diagnoses of actually what's going on. And how does the colposcopy happen? So it can be done in the office or it can be done in, the, in a procedure in the operating room, but most often done in the office. And what we do is we apply acetic acid, which is a vinegar solution, and we look for abnormal or atypical areas on the cervix. And if we see abnormal areas, we can take a biopsy. And that, what we're looking for are precancerous lesions. So you're applying the vinegar solution inside the body mm-hmm. and on then the you cervix. do, you, you scrape something off or you cut something off? Yeah, we take a biopsy with like a biopsy forceps where we take a small amount of is tissue. It, is it painful? Uh, a little bit of cramping. And that's the colposcopy. Mm-hmm. And that is a separate appointment from the doing the pap test. That's right. The pap test is a screening test. And it might screen you in or out of some further testing, which include the colposcopy. When is the appropriate age to start getting a pap test? It's a really good question. The ASCCP, which is kind of our organization that puts out their recommendations for pap smears, they recommend that you start getting your pap smears at age 21 and not before. Does it surprise you to know that most women that I talk to believe that the pap test is for uterine cancer? It doesn't surprise me because I think that 
As a patient, when you sit down to kind of do an exam that's as uncomfortable as a pelvic exam, it's really easy to stop listening or paying attention to kind of exactly what's going on because it's an uncomfortable exam and, you know, testing and looking for these kinds of cancers are done in a similar route. So it's confusing. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we hear about a pap test and we know that it's to check for cancer, but we, I don't think I ever really thought about it being from anything else other than the uterus or that that was included with where this was going to determine there was cancer uterine, cervix, ovarian, fallopian tube, whatever, that it was all included, but it's really not. The pap test is only looking for cancer in the cervix. It's a screening test for cervical cancer. That's true. What causes cervical cancer? And is there any truth in becoming sexually active at a young age can cause or increase the risk of cervical cancer? The human papillomavirus causes 90% of cervical cancers. What is that exactly? That is a sexually transmitted disease that passes sexually. And a lot of the risk factors related to cervical cancer have a lot to do with increased sexual activity. So um, things like, um, you know, kind of early onset of sexual activity predisposes you to cervical cancer. Um, HPV is quite common and in general is something that your body, typically your immune system fights off over time. Um, And so other things that predispose you to not clearing the virus, the HPV virus, Um, are that your immune system is not competent to do so. So immunocompromised states often also predispose us to cervical cancer. Some examples are smoking, which lead to your immune system not being able to clear the HPV virus as well. Pregnancy is an immunocompromised state. HIV is an immunocompromised state. And so that kind of, all of those risk factors together increase your risk of not clearing the virus. What do you mean by that, clearing the virus? I mean that similar to a common cold, a rhinovirus, a lot of people, huge amounts of the population get HPV. It is almost part of growing up. But most people clear it. For most people, their immune system gets rid of the virus, just like you get rid of a cold. Mm. Maybe not over seven to 10 days, like your regular seasonal cold, but in general, you get rid of it. The trouble, the precancerous changes in the cervical cancer come if you don't, you aren't able you as a human, as an immune system, are not able to clear that virus. And that virus stays in those cells and it causes those precancerous and eventually those cancerous changes. Huh, I did not know that you can clear it. That is... Oh yeah, most, most people do. What's even more exciting is that there's a vaccine that helps your body know about it and clear it better and faster. Let's talk about that vaccine. Who should get the vaccine? Oh, who shouldn't get the vaccine? Everyone should get the vaccine. So the FDA has approved uh, the vaccine for up to 45 years old. Um, in general, this is an intervention that we, um, it's mostly from a pediatric standpoint. Most kids are getting it between the ages of 9 and 13. Boys and girls. I would love for boys and girls to get it. That would be fantastic. Does it seem to be encouraged more for girls than for boys? Yes. Yeah, why is that? Well, because HPV has a direct association with cervical cancer. And although there is a small association with penile cancer, it's not really the same risk factors. It's Mm. not really the same disease. Um, And that just has to do with, you know, the genitalia and the way that certain cell types exist in the genitalia. And if you get the, the vaccine, does that mean you can't get cervical cancer? doesn't mean that you can't. There are no absolutes in medicine, okay. but it does mean that you are preventing or rather you are arming your immune system with the ability to clear the human papillomavirus. So you're, re- you're reducing the risk. You're reducing the risk. Would you know if you have HPV? Are there symptoms for that? So we, when we do a pap smear, depending on your age, we often also test for HPV. And in fact, the 
inability to clear HPV seems to be the driving force behind the development of cervical cancer. So there are some places, depending on access to certain tests, that do HPV-only testing. So if you have HPV, is it treatable? I don't know how to you can, you can that. You can get rid of it with some medication. Ah, not quite. Not quite. There isn't a medication that I can give you to get rid of HPV. You can reduce your risk factors or you can arm your immune system to clear it better. But if that HPV has caused changes to your cervix, then I can treat that. You're right. There's not a pill that I can give you to get rid of your HPV. So it's not like other STDs where you would take an antibiotic. No, it's not. That's alarming. So the pap smear accuracy is about 60%. What about HPV testing, which looks like uh, there's a DNA test for the virus? So that's an uh, incredibly accurate test that gets added on to um, some pap smear. For whom would it be added on? So before age 21, the recommendation is for cytology only, which means just the pap smear, just the cells that you look at under the microscope. No HPV testing. The rationale being, as we talked about before, everyone has HPV. There's no point in testing for it in a population where it is more than likely going to get cleared. Starting at age 25, the recommendation is for either every three-year pap alone or every five-year pap smear with HPV testing. A lot of our recommendations for treatment and how we triage the pap smear often also includes HPV testing. For example, if you are doing a pap smear only, let's say you're 21 years old, you've gone to your doctor, they've done a pap smear only, if those cells come back in an abnormal fashion, that test is automatically coded to reflex to an HPV test. That test is automatically coded to reflex to an HPV test, which means that you're going to get information both about the atypical cells that you see and whether or not the high-risk HPV virus exists. And together with that information, we can generate a treatment plan. How long does it take for the HPV virus to start developing cancer cells? We think it takes about 10 years, but it does so through atypical precancerous changes, which is why going to your doctor and getting the screening test is so important. Once a year. Well, no. Once a year, you should go to your doctor, but the pap smear isn't necessarily annual. It used to be, but it's not anymore. Oh. So it's a common misconception. Some people get annual tests for different reasons, but for your regular screening, it's either every three years or every five years. No matter what your age is. Mm-hmm. Can men get tested for HPV? I think it's a blood test, but I have to be honest with you. Not sure. I. <laughs> That's okay. I'm We're an OBGYN restaurant. Right. I've t- never ordered a man's <laughs> test before. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I only treat women. I don't know. Well, we always hear this advice about know your body. Know your body. When something isn't right, go get it checked out. What should women be aware of as a warning sign when it comes to cervical cancer? What are those symptoms? Sure. So I think my the first thing that I want to say again is how important screening is, which does not answer your question directly. But if if you are within the sort of guidelines of screening, the chance of sort of missing a precancerous lesion on a way to cancer is markedly lower. Symptoms of cervical cancer not to ignore are painful sex, bleeding after sex. Those are not normal. Those are things that you should make sure that you see your doctor about. You know, if a pap test comes back inconclusive mm-hmm. twice, and I'm referring to someone that I know, mm-hmm. she had one, six months, they said, come back in six months. Now, I would prefer that to just get another one right away, but mm-hmm. they said, come back in six months. The next one came back inconclusive. 
come back in six months. Yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult. You have to kind of look at the patient themselves because uh, you kind of have to figure out why your pap smears are inconclusive. You know, sometimes as women get older, there's a little bit less estrogen. There's some stenosis or scarring of the cervix. How does the scarring happen? Just it's normal. Sometimes, um, you know, if you've had some procedures like hysteroscopy, um, you know, through, through the cervix or you've had IUDs or things that might, you know, that go through the cervical canal that can cause a little bit of scarring. Or, you know, if you've had procedures for atypical cells on your cervix before. That can also cause scarring. Can a cervix be removed? Yes, it can. That procedure is called a trachelectomy. We've kind of been talking a lot about precancerous lesions so far. But once you do have a cancer diagnosis, a cervical cancer diagnosis, sort of the biggest decision tree at that point is whether or not the patient in front of you has desires for future childbearing or not. When cancer, when cervical cancer is in its early stages, Surgery is the mainstay of treatment, and if your patient wants to continue to preserve their fertility, then you can actually remove the cervix itself and reattach the uterus to the vagina directly, and that's called a trachelectomy. Um, It's a challenging procedure, as you might imagine, and any future pregnancies after that have a pretty decent fecundity rate, which is your rate of actually becoming pregnant. Those women obviously cannot labor. They, they must have a C-section in order to deliver. Okay, but it's not impossible to have a child. It's not impossible. So um, I mentioned that, you know, know your body. If you have symptoms, go to the doctors. What's next? After you get the, the pap test, comes back maybe with something suspicious. Then, then what is next? So now you have a cytologic or a histologic diagnosis. You have atypical cells. What you need is a pathologic diagnosis. You need, um, you need tissue. So the next step is a colposcopy which is when you take a microscope and you look closely on the cervix after applying that acetic acid that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. And if there are abnormal areas, you take a biopsy. And then you await those results. If there is high-grade dysplasia or um, sort of more severe precancerous lesion, then... Um, which tip- is, is, is that a high-grade dysplasia? Mm-hmm. Okay, yep, that's those are the same thing. Mm-hmm then what you would want to proceed with is an excisional procedure, which is either a leap or a cone. And that's a procedure that you do in the operating room or sometimes in the office where you remove a portion of the cervix. So you're just cutting the cancer out? Pre-cancer. It's pre-cancer. <laughs> it's not cancer yet. Hmm. Pre-cancer. And you can do that without impacting fertility? Yeah, that's a great question too. If you have multiple procedures, one of those procedures does not seem to increase the risk of preterm labor or um, infertility or any of those things, but that's what we worry about. As you shorten the cervix, and again, it's four centimeters long, and when you're taking sort of a larger biopsy or excision of it, you're taking about one centimeter, that sort of thing. One of those procedures does not impact Preterm labor, but multiple procedures definitely predisposes you to a shortened cervix. What other tests or screenings are, are involved with making that diagnosis? Sure. So once you have a tissue diagnosis of cancer, you want to make sure that the cancer is local and that it hasn't spread anywhere else. And so um, I do that by ordering two tests, an MRI, and that gives me a, a sort of a nice 3D representation of what's going on in the cervix and the uterus and something called a PET GAN. It's a radio tracer uh, attached to a sugar molecule that um, is a scan that especially can look for metastatic disease throughout the body. What about a blood test? Will anything show up in a blood test? Man, I wish. Yeah. No. Would be nice. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So then at what point do you sit down with a patient to discuss staging? Explain what staging is and 
Tell me why it's important. Cervical cancer staging has three ways to stage it. And let me tell you why. Because cervical cancer is the number one cancer in the world, which means that in sub-Saharan Africa, where HIV and HPV are rampant and there is a high rate of cervical cancer, I need to be able to communicate to a physician there on their staging, as well as them be able to communicate with me. They might not have a PET scanner. So the staging for cervical cancer is a little unique from the rest of our GYN cancers because there's often a letter that accompanies each of them, P, R, or C. Up until a few years ago, cervical cancer was only staged using a C, clinical, which means that what I feel with my hands, what I see with my eyes, clinical. Then FIGO, which is our international staging system, came out and said, you know what, we can use the tools that we have as long as we're able to communicate throughout the world about it, and we can stage it R, radiographically, using a PET CT or an MRI, or we can stage it with a P, pathologically. So oftentimes you might see different stages depending on which way they have been staged. What I see with my eyes is different than what I see on a scan, is maybe even different than what I see, what I get with my pathology. So a combination of an exam and the scans that I mentioned come together to give me a stage. So if someone has a stage with a C, clinical, meaning that you saw it with your eye, it could actually be worse? Yes. A worse cancer? Yes, that's and exactly when, right. And when you are seeing that, yeah, I guess you're looking with, through a speculum mm-hmm. during a pelvic exam. Do you tell the patient that you think you're eyeballing some cancer? Definitely. I mean, I, I'm always honest with my patients. I mean, they're, by the time they come to see me, it says GYN oncologist on the door. I think the cat's out of the bag. They, right. they, they know they're somewhere where cancer's on the table. How would you know? How do you identify it? What does it look like? So masses on the cervix that appear to be cancerous tend to be friable. They tend to be vascular. They have a lot of, um, you know, sort of abnormal tissue. They don't appear like normal cervix. Um, cancer in general is firm. It is sometimes it can protrude through the cervix. There can be a mass. It's a, it's a tumor looking. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. How do you think your, most of your patients are who come in with cervical cancer? What's, what's an average age? I'd say that the average age for women with cervical cancer is about 50, but I have seen younger outliers. What's the youngest patient that you've seen? 25. There are surgical options for cervical cancer. Early cervical cancer. Yes. Oh, just early? Mm -hmm. You couldn't get a surgery with a late stage? It's complicated. Locally advanced cervical cancer, which is cervical cancer that has grown in the pelvis. We we have good data that suggests that primary chemotherapy and radiation has the same survival outcomes as surgery. But surgery has more complications. And the reason for that is because people who have larger tumors that have invaded more locally, you know, other structures in the pelvis, They end up having high-risk disease, and we ultimately end up recommending adjuvant or post-surgical radiation or even radiation and chemotherapy for those patients. And when you do surgery followed by radiation on top of your surgical site, it turns out you get a lot more side effects. Things like challenges with healing, fistulas, harm to surrounding organs, bowels, things like that. So in general, we try to recommend single modality treatment. So we try not to be in a situation where you end up getting surgery and radiation and chemotherapy. That if we think you're high risk enough that you're going to end up getting chemotherapy and radiation, it serves you better and your survival better and your side effects better to have chemo and radiation up front. What about laser surgery? I don't use laser surgery for cervical cancer, but the same risk factors that predispose you to atypical or precancerous 
lesions on the cervix predispose you to precancerous lesions in the vagina and the vulva. And when in the vagina you have areas that are abnormal, precancerous, and they're in multiple areas, sometimes I do use a laser for those areas. Doing surgery on multifocal disease in the vagina is very challenging. Also, in general, it is important to maintain sexual function for those who want to have that. And so taking out portions of the vagina, especially with you know, multiple areas of disease, is just not going to solve, you know, it's not really, it's challenging and it might not address everything as opposed to using a laser, which can address sort of the top layer of those atypical cells mm-hmm. and have the same result. But it would only be good for precancer. Precancer. Okay. The surgery depends on whether or not fertility is desired in the future. Locally advanced cervical cancer is treated chemotherapy and radiation because the efficacy at a certain stage is equivalent to that of surgery, but the side effects are lower. And then metastatic cervical cancer is treated with chemotherapy. Metastatic cancer being that it's already spread into some other areas of the body. Correct. What's new on the horizon for cervical cancer treatment? Is there hope? Yes, definitely. You know, I I think as a field in general, we've had a lot of forward progress with biologic agents like bevacizumab, which are targeted therapies towards certain receptors that the cervical cancer express, the cervical cancer cells. And what is that, a pill, an infusion? Uh, Bevacizumab is an infusion. Uh, It's also called Avastin. Is it a form of chemotherapy? Yeah, it's why I would call it a targeted agent. Immunotherapy. It is not an immunotherapy. Oh. But we do have immunotherapy that also has shown quite significant efficacy in the treatment of cervical cancer. That's called pembrolizumab or Keytruda. That's mm-hmm. an immunotherapy. And then on the docket really are antibody drug conjugates, um, which are drugs that are kind of hooked to the, the chemotherapy is hooked in a drug delivery system to target the tumor itself. So hopefully minimizing side effects to other tissues while treating the tumor more effectively. I think that's, that's really the forefront. What are some of the risk factors for for women that we should be aware of? And is there a way to prevent it? We mentioned the vaccine, but what else? What else can we do? No, I can't keep going without saying the vaccine again. I mean, there, <laughs> they, there's so few cancers that are preventable. Mm-hmm. There are so few cancers that have the efficacy and the safety of the HPV vaccine and metastatic and recurrent when, can, when cervical cancer comes back. That is not curable. Now, you said before that 90% of cervical cancers are caused by HPV. What about the other 10%? How are they caused then? Yeah, those are random. I mean, you know, we, everyone in your body, you have genes that are responsible for holding back cancer. You know, we have millions of cells in our body and all of them are, are multiplying all of the time. And it is natural to have error in those cells. And just by random chance. Most cancers are caused by genetic error. If you multiply enough times, you might have an error in a gene that prevents and protects you from cancer. And if that gene is mutated, there you go. You have cancer. Cervical cancer doesn't come with, you know, hereditary genetics like ovarian cancer or breast cancer or pancreatic cancer. You know, it doesn't have that. You know, the risk factors for cervical cancer are HPV, smoking, and immunocompromise. And so, you know, the first thing is don't smoke. The second thing is get your vaccine, although I think I should probably flip that order. Get your vaccine and don't smoke. I did read something that was very interesting um, I wanted to ask you about, and that is that for other cancers, ovarian and uterus, uh, uterine cancer, having had babies or previous pregnancies were said to lower your risks for those types of cancers, but not true of cervical cancer. Why is that? 
This is a little bit of a sort of data um, gymnastics. So to be very clear, somebody who has cervical cancer and who is pregnant does not necessarily have a worse prognosis as somebody who is not pregnant. But the fact that you have had multiple pregnancies probably is alluding to increased sexual activity, which predisposes you more to HPV. Mm. So it's not the pregnancy itself. What's the takeaway for women? Get the HPV vaccine. <laughs> Get vaccinated. Uh, make sure that you're, um, you know, you're seeing your, uh, your GYN for your regular screening. And don't, please, please, please don't ignore symptoms. What made you get into gynecologic oncology? Sure. Well, I, I, I became a, a cancer doctor because I had family that, you know, that had cancer growing up. And I, I kind of always knew that that was going to be my passion. But gynecologic oncology is a unique field. It is the only field that does their own surgery and their own chemotherapy. And so the concept of have, having the sort of whole care of the patient from the beginning of their diagnosis through surgery and treatment and you know, potentially even transition to palliative care really appeals to me because I, I really value a close and a deep relationship with patients. And I really feel honored to sort of be conductor of, uh, of their cancer care, mm-hmm. you know, not the continuity and the continuity is important, but also, you know, like I am an expert in gynecologic cancers. I'm not an expert in other cancers. I don't know much about them in other places, but as far as gynecologic cancers, I am an expert in that. I'm an expert in the data that has existed. I'm an expert in what is coming out. I'm an expert in that surgery. And so I really, you know, I really get to own that whole care. And I think for the patient, it's also nice to have one doctor that takes care. Well, thank you for all that you do. Of course. We've been talking with Dr. Irina Tunnage at MedStar Franklin Square Medical Center in Baltimore. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. You're on MedStar Health Doc Talk. For more information on cervical cancer or to schedule an appointment, call the MedStar Georgetown Cancer Institute at 443-777-7990.